Welcome to the Let's Think About That podcast, where we don't just react. We'll break it down and think about it. We're going to talk news, the law, sports, whatever we're thinking about. We're your host, Ed Yeager and Lee Allen. Lee, how are you, my friend? I'm doing well, Ed. I hope you are. I am, and I am excited about this. In our relatively uh, still young podcast, this is our first special episode, two episodes in a week. It's uh, I've enjoyed preparing for this one probably more than the others. I don't know what that says about me, but uh, it's true. Um, the Supreme Court term uh, starts uh, the first Monday in October, which would be Monday, October the 4th. So this coming Monday, and um, those folks uh, will hit the ground running. And we have some things to talk about with regard to that. That's right. We're going to do our special Supreme Court preview. We'll make it an annual thing. They start and, and, to have a new term every October. And and we'll have a review in, in July. And, and just in case anybody's wondering why they start the first Monday in October, it's set by statute now. Congress passed that in 1916. For years, they did a ceremonial start. But since 1975, they've really kicked off the term with oral arguments on the first Monday of every October. A little bit different this year uh, with the new argument format. You want to uh, explain that uh, to folks? Well, I think it's important to first talk about traditionally what oral arguments have been like in the Supreme Court. It's uh, you know it's a big courtroom. The, the judges are up on the dais. A lawyer comes in and argues. And from the very beginning, they can start asking questions almost from the time he introduces himself. Uh, well, when COVID came along, they decided to stop doing oral arguments in person. So they went to a, a conference call system, basically. And each because you couldn't have all the justices talking at the same time, each justice went in order and got to ask questions. And it totally civilized the process. Uh, some may disagree, but I think it made for a more interesting question and answer format. It did. As we heard professional, too. And we heard from justices like Justice Thomas, who almost never asked questions. That's right. Um, it, it's very interesting. So, so now they're actually coming back in person and they have adopted kind of a. Um, a hybrid system, as I understand it, where there'll be some protected time, but then the justice will each get to answer questions or they'll all ask questions. And then at the conclusion of a certain amount of time, then it can kind of just go on um, indefinitely with each justice in turn asking any additional questions they have. Uh, now, one other wrinkle to that is that everyone has to, every uh, attorney who's arguing before the court has to have a rapid COVID test. And they have to be prepared in case that test comes back positive so that they can then switch to a hybrid system with a, a phone set up and they can make their argument telephonically. Would that be there in the Supreme Court building or they have to leave and go somewhere else to do that? You know, according to the court's uh, press release, they each attorney has to have that set up for themselves. And of course, Getting across or around D.C. is not like getting around small town eastern North Carolina. You better have someplace close by set up because you're not going to have time to go, you know, find your car, get in it, drive across town, park, and be ready to go when the case is called. That's right. And, and not only that, but they kind of noted that in the press releases that attorneys need to be prepared for that from a um, – practice standpoint also that they have they're familiar with the technology and that they can pull it off on a moment's notice but that means you may have some cases where you have one attorney there in person another one over the telephone yeah it might even happen with justices 
just yeah. today, Justice Kavanaugh uh, came down with COVID. So I don't I know, know if he'll that. be. Yeah, that just happened today. So I don't know that he'll be hearing arguments on Monday. At least not in person. Exactly. Wow. Interesting. I don't think I would like, um, if I were counsel, to make the argument by computer or by phone if my opponent is there in the courtroom. I understand that, you know, they're extenuating circumstances and COVID has sort of thrown a wrench in lots of things, but that, I don't think I'd like that. You would have to feel somewhat disadvantaged, I would, I would think. think so. Um, and it'll be interesting, too, sort of stepping back to look at how this is going to play out from a time management standpoint with the Chief Justice, because apparently once the allotted time is over and it can continue uh, with questions, he's sort of in charge. And, you know, how long does he let his colleagues go with their questions? Because that, that would be what would drive it at that point, not not uh, arguments from counsel as much as responses. But, you know, and is he going to be accused of, for lack of a better word, partisanship? You know, if he, if he shuts up or stops the questioning from a member of the left, is, is that going to, you know, cause a problem? Or if he shuts up or stops um, one of the more conservative members of the court, uh, is that going to cause a problem? And will they get down to counting numbers? You let two liberal justices ask more questions. Now you have to let two on the right do that. How's that all going to play out? It will be fascinating to watch. Yeah, and I know there's going to be some court watchers who are like timing it down to the second and trying oh, yeah. to read the tea leaves. Those guys at SCOTUS blog will be all over this. Absolutely. And for those of you who don't know, SCOTUSblog.org is a website, uh, I guess you'd call it, where they're all Supreme Court all the time. And uh, it is chock full of insight and analysis and information. So for this term, uh, as of today, the court has accepted certiorari in 37 cases. So what we did was we each went through the list, took a couple of cases we were interested in, and we thought we would just uh, talk about that tonight. And and explain to our listeners who may not know what certiorari is. You know, typically, uh, if someone loses a court case in North Carolina, whether it's criminal <clears throat> or civil, they have a right to appeal to the North Carolina Court of Appeals. Uh, depending on the outcome there, it's a three-judge panel most often, and if that panel splits, they then have a right to appeal to the North Carolina Supreme Court. In the federal court system, if you have a case in federal district court, civil or criminal, you have a right to appeal to the Circuit Court of Appeals, and there are cir circuits that cover a uh, select group of states uh, set up around the country. Beyond that, however, you have no right to appeal to the U.S. Supreme Court. So instead, you file a petition for a writ of certiorari, asking the court to exercise its discretion and hear your case. And if they grant the writ, then they will uh, then direct uh, the parties to file briefs, etc., and allow friends of the court to file briefs, and they will hear the case. So the, the Supreme Court decides what cases they want to hear every year, and the criteria that is often mentioned as a circuit split. So if you've got, for example, the 11th Circuit has said one thing and the 9th Circuit on the West Coast has, Coast has said something different, the Supreme Court may intervene to resolve that. They also take what they just consider important cases. And why they consider them important is not always obvious, but that's that's how it works. So 
if you get a court to grant cert, and as of now, like, like I say, they only have granted cert in 37 cases, that's pretty impressive. It is. Most cases obviously don't don't reach uh, the Supreme Court. And, you know, through the years, particularly the last, say, 75 or so, the number of cases that the court grants cert in has dropped tremendously. Um, it went from, you know, maybe 150 or so down to, as you said, just under 40. And, of course, the Supreme Court term uh, it usually runs from the first Monday in October until late June, early July. So uh, they're doing fewer cases in the same amount of time. And they catch some grief about that. Uh, I think their response would be, well, they're more selective and they're taking more, not necessarily more complicated, but more important matters uh, to some extent. And therefore, they use that time to properly adjudicate the case and make sure they have plenty of time to consider all that they want to consider. And sometimes they just want to let it percolate among the circuit courts of appeal for a while. That's right. And kind of let those bodies of law develop. Uh, so the other side of this coin is, you know, if someone has a case and it goes to the circuit court of appeals, then that circuit court is going to be bound by other decisions of that circuit if the Supreme Court hasn't ruled in that area. That's right. And and And, and we need to remind our listeners, too, that when you ask for certiorari, it's called a cert petition or referred to as a cert petition, and and it's it's um it's not a full blown brief, but there is uh, there's more than one page uh, typically, and uh, there are arguments made within uh, the cert petition. Um, <clears throat> excuse me, um, as to why the court should take a particular case, and there are facts cited and and, and uh, cases cited, and the judges or the justices, I should say have to review, well, they don't have to, but they do have to review those cert petitions that, that stack up. And there may be hundreds to thousands of those. Um, and some judges have pulled their law clerks for the purposes of wading through them and having the clerks write a memo for the judges who then participate so that they'll have a, uh, a shorter summary of what's in the cert petition and why it should or should not be granted. And then other justices, and I um, do not... Uh, pool their law clerks for purposes of cert petitions, and their clerks have to go through each one and prepare whatever it is that the justice wants in the way of a, uh, a summary or, or some sort of a reduced opinion, if, for, if, if for nothing else, as to why the court should or should not uh, grant cert in a particular case. And those, <clears throat> those are very, um, there's a very large number of those cases every year, and there's a lot of work that goes into, into that for for all of them. So they may be deciding 37 cases in the sense of issuing an opinion, but they're deciding other cases in the sense that they're reading these cert petitions and not granting them. For and, reasons, sometimes, and sometimes that is a decision. That's right. For, for reasons good, bad, or indifferent, known only to them typically, most of the time there's a, a, a one or two sentence uh, opinion that's usually not even signed by a particular justice that says certiorari is denied um, or it says it's granted. Um, every once in a while, there'll be a dissent from one of those uh, and perhaps uh, there'll be signed opinions, but typically they're what we call per curiam, which means for the court and they're not signed by a particular justice. But you're right. That, that, uh, oftentimes that is a decision. And sometimes that decision is simply, as you said, kick the can down the road because either the law needs to develop, they want a case with different facts, 
because it might be easier to decide or they want to address something that is not apparent from the facts of the particular case uh, before them that's uh, someone seeking certiorari on. So um, it's, uh, it's a quite interesting process. And one thing I don't think we mentioned is that typically there is a certain number of justices that are required to agree for the court to grant certiorari. And as I recall, it's four under their rules. That's right. So when all of these cert petitions go up there, there have to be at least four justices that decide, hey, this is worthy of coming to the Supreme Court. And if there aren't at least four of those, then they don't hear the case. That's right. And and um, it's important for our readers to, to remember, too, that the court was established by way of the Constitution. And beyond that, statutes control, and then the court sets its own rules and and the certiorari process, the conference where they talk about cases and vote, all of those things are rules for the most part. There are certain statutes that, that govern these things, but it's mostly court-driven. Um, and, and the court is a, obviously one of the three co-equal branches, and they, they have, a, for the most part, almost plenary power over what they hear and what they don't hear. Certain cases are required by the Constitution to be heard in the Supreme Court. Those are few and far between and very rare. Um, and uh, there's some statutes that deal with some things uh, with regard to to uh, the court's caseload. But by and large, they decide. So that's kind of the process that gets us to talking about some uh, cases that are coming before this court this year. Uh, you have one of the ones that's caught a lot of media attention. You want to start with start us off talking about that? Yeah, the case is uh, Jackson's. I'm sorry, Jackson Women's Health Organization versus Dobbs, and it is a case out of uh, Mississippi, uh, the Fifth Circuit. The Mississippi General Assembly uh, passed a statute that bans abortions with limited, very limited exceptions after 15 weeks from conception. Well, not from conception, from the last menstrual period, which is different from conception, and, and the, the court gets into that. The Fifth Circuit ruled December 13th that it was unconstitutional as written and as applied and just blanketly said unconstitutional because it runs afoul of the Roe versus Wade and the Casey versus Planned Parenthood or Planned Parenthood versus Casey, which established, uh, read, read together the viability principle that before a fetus is viable, the state has no interest, in, according to uh, our Supreme Court, in regulating abortion. And then as the fetus becomes viable, then uh, the state's interest is sufficient to impose regulations in the second trimester. Uh, and of course, by interest, we mean authority to regulate. That's right. They can be very interested, but not not have the authority. Right. Um, it's a fancy word for, for authority or whether we're going to allow uh, the legislature to do that. And in the third trimester, according to the Roe um, analysis, um, the, uh, the state can uh, can limit, uh, prohibit uh, abortions um, with, uh, with very limited exceptions. So that's sort of the background the two exceptions under the uh, Mississippi statute, the first one was for what's called severe fetal abnormality, 
which was defined as a condition which was incompatible with life outside the womb. In other words, if the if the child simply cannot live uh, after birth, then that is a um, situation that in which abortion can uh, legally proceed. The other was was called for an for a medical emergency, and that was defined as uh, something necessary to preserve the mother's life or prevent a serious risk of substantial or irreversible impairment of a major bodily function. Other than that, after 15 weeks from the last menstrual period, no abortions in the state of Mississippi. Of course, 15 weeks is prior to the to the viability under the road uh, analysis. The case was heard at the district court level by Judge Steve C. Jones, an Obama appointee who uh, has been on the bench since, um, I think, March 3rd, 2011. And he caught a lot of grief in the concurring opinion in the Fifth Circuit, which the the judge there was um, the judge who, who wrote the concurring opinion said, "I am duty bound to follow the Roe and Casey uh, precedent because I am in a lower court, but I do not agree with the analysis and the reasons therefore." And then excoriated this Judge Jones for some things that he wrote in his uh, district court opinion that were, quite frankly, seemingly beyond the pale for what you, certainly what you would expect from a judge and, and, and likely what you would want or hope from a judge. For instance, Judge Jones wrote, the Mississippi legislature's professed interest in women's health is pure gaslighting. And then and that was when the Mississippi or the argument was made by the uh, Mississippi folks in, in uh, support of their statute that it was a women's health uh, initiative or, or it was designed to help women's health. And then he went on to say the state ranks as the state with the most medical challenges for women, infants, and children, but is silent on expanding Medicaid. So there we have the judge rank political commentary, you know, chastising the Mississippi legislature for not expanding Medicaid in a manner that the judge thought they ought to, which my response to that would be resign from the bench and file for office, and if you win, take the oath and do something about it. But anyway, um, then he, he even goes further, and he says those who believe in the sanctity of life are, quote, bent on controlling women and minorities and, quote, disregarding their rights as citizens, close quote. And uh, as I said, the, the Fifth Circuit excoriated, the, the concurring judge excoriated him for that uh, and, and pointed it out. Um, and if I were that judge, I'd be a little worried that the, the Court of Appeals that sits above me, uh, at least one of them, was not happy with what I had done in the sense of not so much my decision, but but the, the language that I used in my decision. And this concurring judge then even goes on to say, when you talk about gaslighting and so forth, I mean, according to this judge, reasonable people can differ as to the morality and the legality of abortion. And, and it even cites some uh, language in the various opinions from the Planned Parenthood versus Casey case where the Supreme Court said, you know, people of good faith can differ on abortion, and and therefore it was especially wrong for this district court judge to, to say these things. 
the case has generated a lot, as you said, of interest. I counted there are at least 50 friend-of-the-court briefs, um, including, uh, I found these two most interesting. Uh, one, you had the usual suspects on both sides, but then there was a brief, uh, a friend-of-the-court brief from the WNBA and one from the American Historical Association. And the vast majority of these, of course, are in support of the respondent, not the petitioner, the petitioner being the state of Mississippi that is seeking Supreme Court review of this Fifth Circuit holding that uh, the statute was unconstitutional. So these, most of these friend-of-the-court briefs are, as we would say, pro-abortion. Um, I, I took a look at um, the, the, the one filed by the American Bar Association and, and spent some time with that. And interestingly enough, it is almost completely couched in its argument that precedent, what, what we lawyers call stare decisis, which is, you know, if, if the court's already ruled on this issue, then that should be given great to controlling weight. Um, that's what the ABA says, that uh, since Roe, we've had uh, we've had abortion uh, legal in this country under uh, the, the Roe analysis, and it can't be prescribed, and then it's been touched on by the Casey case and some others, but the ABA basically says because it's always been that way or been that way for almost 50 years, we need to leave this alone and, and keep it there. And, of course, the response to that that you typically hear is what would have happened in the Plessy if the Plessy versus Ferguson, which was this, this case that I guess is commonly believed to or, or, or known to have upheld uh, Jim Crow, stare decisis would have would have left that in place simply because it's a prior but, prior holding. Even though it's wrong, you don't leave it in place. And there's a good reason I'm not a member of the American Bar Association because I don't agree with them. That was, or that is, um, quote, the abortion case that the court has, has now taken. And, of course, the commentators believe that with Kavanaugh and Barrett most recently joining the court, there are at least four votes to overturn Roe. I'm not sure uh, how strongly, if they feel quite so strongly about that after uh, the the rulings of this last term, um, where uh, certainly uh, those justices, among others, had an opportunity to uh, to vote more in line with their perceived political beliefs and did not. But uh, if you count noses, it would appear that there would be f at least four votes to overturn Roe versus Wade, and of course this case would be a vehicle in which to do that if there is a fifth vote to do so. I think. My own personal opinion is that Justice Chief Justice Roberts is um, quite uh, attuned to the notion of the court's perception uh, among uh, citizens and therefore probably is going to take steps, vote whatever necessary to avoid a 5-4 decision that overturns Roe. He wants to find consensus. Yes. It seems seems pretty clear every term. Um, and, and I don't think I think if it were to be, if if his vote were to be the fifth vote, um, I don't think he, I think he would vote the other way in order to avoid a five four 
decision. I mean, because clearly if it were to be overturned, there would be a firestorm of controversy. That could be blunted somewhat if the vote were 6372. I don't think there are votes to get there. It might, might be at some point in the future, but not now. But a 5-4 decision would indicate that the court is as divided as, the, as our citizenry. Um, and, of course, you and I would say that that's all the more reason that the court doesn't need to be deciding this, that the legislatures do. A political decision. That's right. It's a political question. Um, yeah, one of the things I found interesting about this case was the uh, state of Mississippi's argument that viability, that the standard of viability just doesn't work anymore because it's arbitrary, but also because it puts the state in this weird position that when medical developments come along and there's viability changes or or that viability is at a different time, then that changes the state's authority so that you can't really tie the law to something like that. Right. And it's, the, 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 you know, the, the implication, and I think it's exactly right, is that viability, the time in which a fetus is viable is being reduced scientifically or medically almost constantly. And it's, it's, it's been reduced by leaps and bounds uh, just within the last, you know, couple of decades. And of course, in the future, who knows? Uh, what that may uh, what that may become. And There's been talk in the past about artificial wombs or something like that in which fetuses could be uh, carried along outside of a body even. So. Yeah. Fascinating stuff. Yeah, it is. Now, the question is, what happens if the court throws out viability as a standard? What do they replace it with, if anything? I don't know. Um, it would be interesting to know if the court could request briefing on that, either before they hear this case or, or after. And I would think that if they are inclined to throw out viability, which wouldn't necessarily, I mean, it would throw out Roe in the sense that Roe talks about viability, but it wouldn't necessarily mean abortions can now be proscribed or are proscribed, but I would think they would want some sort of input from from some somewhere as to what the standard should be. It's one thing to say that's a bad standard. It's another to craft a better one. Uh, and, I, you know, you wonder, could the left and the right on the court agree on a new standard? Yeah, that's know? hard to imagine. Yeah. Um, but I think this case is set for oral argument in November, as I recall. So uh, have to de- make it a December, I think. December? Yeah. Okay. Interesting. That's going to be a huge case. It's going to draw all the media attention, Absolutely. whether it has major ramifications or not. Yeah, now, even look, if they don't do anything much, it, it'll still get a lot of media play. And then one side or the other, or maybe both will be upset. Who knows? Yeah, I mean, if they do nothing, I think that conservatives are going to look at, well, we just put three justices on the Supreme Court and nothing changes, right. which has been a, a argument that conservatives have had for years, which is that you 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 nominate and get through confirmation someone who seems conservative, then they don't vote in that way. Right. So now I had one of the one of the cases I chose was not an abortion case, but it was related to. Uh, abortion litigation, and that was Cameron versus EMW Women's Surgical Center. And it's a case out of Kentucky, and it involved an 
an abortion law that the state of Kentucky passed. So Kentucky passed a law that prohibited abortions in which the child was dismembered while still alive, which just sounds horrendous, but it apparently accurately represents what happens in, in many of these uh, situations. Um, so the law gets challenged by a an abortion center in Louisville, EMW Women's Surgical Center. It gets challenged in federal court. And for about two years, the Secretary of Health and Family Services, which is a cabinet-level officer there in Kentucky, led the legal defense of the law. Uh, during that time, the local district court, they issued a permanent injunction against enforcement of the law. The Secretary of Health and Family Services appealed that to the Sixth Circuit and used lawyers from the Kentucky Attorney General's office. Now, when it gets to the Sixth Circuit, that court voted two to one to affirm the district court's injunction, which effectively just prevented any enforcement of the law from that point forward. After the Sixth Circuit on a split panel voted to affirm, the secretary decided not to appeal it anymore. At that point, the Attorney General of Kentucky, who's an elected official and who is uh, uh, strongly pro-life, he filed a motion to intervene in the case to represent Kentucky's interest in this legislation. The Sixth Circuit voted not to allow the AG to defend the Kentucky law. Shortly thereafter, the Supreme Court decided June medical, so the AG then filed a petition to have it reheard. The whole the uh, the, the majority of the panel again said the AG can't intercede in this law. So AG is not happy about that. The Attorney General he takes it to the U.S. Supreme Court. They've granted cert on this issue. And the issue they've granted on is, is whether a state attorney general who's vested with the power to defend state law should be allowed to intervene when a federal court of appeals invalidates a state statute when no other state actor will defend the law. And then if so, whether the court should vacate the judgment and remand in light of June medical, which would you know, affect the Kentucky law. Now, what, what I found really interesting about this case is how it might apply in situations or in states where you have one party that has the governor, uh, the governorship or the attorney general versus a different party that has the state legislature. Uh, you know, we talked several months ago about the, this idea of what happens with consent orders and that sometimes there are these friendly lawsuits Let's say we have a, a Democrat attorney general, we could flip parties, you know, just put a label on it. But that attorney general wants to see something happen and can't get it through a legislature that's controlled by the other party. So there's a lawsuit. He enters a consent judgment, gets a, a, a judge to sign off on that, and it basically becomes the law which binds the legislature. Uh, now, one thing that has happened, and I think I sent you a message about this, is that uh, here in North Carolina, uh, the state House of Representatives recently passed legislation out which would prevent the state attorney general from agreeing to anything that he didn't take back to the uh, legislature to get their approval on. So I find this whole thing fascinating about state officials and who gets to defend the law and uh, how that's going to play out and what the um, the court's going to allow. Uh, just on this point, uh, Phil Berger and Timothy Moore, who are the 
uh, Senate Majority Leaders and Speaker of the House in the North Carolina Legislature, they filed a brief in support of the Kentucky Attorney General because they'd had a similar thing happen before the Fourth Circuit, which covers North Carolina. Uh, they filed a brief. There was another brief, a friend of the court brief, in which 23 other states joined and took the same position as the Kentucky Attorney General. So to me, the so what is, you know, how's the court going to allow someone such as an attorney general who's elected, whose oath of office says that he's going to defend legislation from the state and whether he's going to be allowed to intervene in federal court when no one else in the state government wants to defend a law? Interesting. Um, I, uh, my knee jerk would be, of course they will, but I haven't thought out where that goes. What's the logical conclusion there? What are the unintended consequences? You know, I'm, I'm troubled and have been for some time by, uh, and, and, and uh, Josh Stein, our attorney general here in this state has, has done this where an attorney general of a state swears an oath to defend the state and its laws in court, and then because of political, personal political beliefs, uh, says, I'm simply not going to defend that law, and walk away. Um, and, and he has done that. And he has done that, and and other attorneys general have done that as well, and it's, to me, that's offensive. Uh, you know, the, as lawyers, uh, despite what, uh, the, you know, the courts and uh, some of these states have said in response to the 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 November 3rd presidential election litigation, lawyers are not their clients, and, and, and they don't necessarily espouse their clients' political beliefs. They simply represent their client in a court of law uh, according to their uh, professional obligations. And just because you represent a murderer doesn't make you a murderer. Just because you represent um, a Republican or a Democrat legislature doesn't mean you accept and, and, and uh, support all of that particular party's views. Um, and and I, you know, I think that is a terrible, terrible development that's seemingly just happened recently uh, where these attorney generals, attorneys general have refused to defend the law. And so this is maybe the flip side of that. I, I don't know that I like the idea of a federal court telling a state I get to decide who can who can represent you as a party because I think that's what we're talking about here substituting the attorney general as the party in a lawsuit when when there's no other uh, state official willing to play that role uh, and thus prevent the litigation from proceeding uh, I, 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 that that doesn't seem that doesn't seem proper to me. Well, and two points, you know, when, when you say that the attorney is not their client and and shouldn't be identified as such, that that's a tenet of the legal profession that goes back to John Adams' involvement in, after the Boston massacre, uh, and he wasn't popular for defending those defendants, but he thought it was something he had to do. But the other thing that has to be remembered is that some of these cases go on for years. Yeah. Legislation may pass. The legislature may pass a law, and it may not even get challenged in court for some period of time. Uh, state administrations change, people change, political parties change, so it can just take time before these things play out. That's a good point, and it's been fairly typical to substitute parties 
uh, when that happens um, with governors or you know state cabinet members or executive council, whatever they're referred to. Or it happens automatically with the U.S. Attorney General. And, yeah. you know, every day, if you subscribe to the listservs, you'll see cases that come from the Courts of Appeals with the Attorney General's name as a defendant in it. And from one day to the next, if there's a new AG, names just change. It's yeah. just automatic. It doesn't mean anything beyond that. Right. And that makes sense. Um, common sense, you know, sometimes gets lost. Interesting. So what's your other case? <laughs> My other case, and I'm sure I'm going to butcher the name, um, I refer to it as the Boston Marathon, Marathon Bomber case, but it's United States versus Sarinev. In, uh, July 30, on July 31st of 20, the First uh, Circuit Court of Appeals vacated the death penalty in, uh, in the surviving Boston Marathon Bombers case. Um, as you'll recall, there were two brothers... Uh, one of whom was killed um, in the shootout there in Watertown uh, the night before the younger brother was arrested in the back of the boat. And the question is, you know, was he killed by a gunfire? Was he killed when his brother ran over him? And who knows? But the, the bottom line is he ended up dead, so there was one prosecution. Um, the younger uh, Zarnef, um, whose name is, uh, and I'm going to tell you what it is, Jokar was charged with a number of violations of federal law. And I think it's fair to say that he was prosecuted in federal court, not state court, because the Commonwealth of Massachusetts does not have and has not had since 1984 the death penalty. And, of course, the feds have the death penalty available uh, in terrorism and, and certain other types of cases. Remember Timothy McVeigh, although Oklahoma, the state of Oklahoma has a... Um, has a death penalty as well. But anyway, he was prosecuted and convicted and sentenced to death. He appealed his case, and the First Circuit said that because that they found really two reasons uh, to set aside uh, the conviction. First, the trial judge declined to allow defense lawyers to probe with specificity, each prospective juror's, excuse me, knowledge of the case and the effect of any pretrial knowledge and whether that juror could set aside that knowledge and be an unbiased juror. The court uh, developed um, and used a prospective juror questionnaire that touched on the subject of pretrial publicity, and it allowed lawyers to follow up with prospective jurors in Vardir as to certain answers on those prospective juror uh, questionnaires, but it didn't allow them sort of uh, more latitude, if you will, in, in developing the specificity that perhaps they wanted with regard to uh, pretrial publicity. Um, the First Circuit said, it quoted a First Circuit case from the late 60s, um, and said that judges must elicit the kind and degree of each prospective juror's exposure to the case or parties if asked by counsel, and only then can the judge reliably assess whether a potential juror can ignore that publicity as the law requires. The other basis for setting aside the conviction, uh, not the conviction, but the death sentence, 
um, it, it was the defendant wanted to put on evidence that his older brother, now dead, uh, on the 10th anniversary of September the 11th, participated in a, an armed robbery uh, in which he bound, he and others bound, beat, and slit the throats of three individuals, at least some of whom were friendly with him. And the court did not allow this evidence um, and said, uh, among other things, that it would be a waste of time. So the question is, would that have been uh, exculpatory or mitigating? The argument was made at, in the course of this trial at the district court level, not that the defendant was coerced by his brother, but that he was influenced by his older brother into committing these crimes. The older brother was, if you'll recall, a, a boxer, had a criminal history, was known to be um, sort of aggressive and perhaps uh, fair to label him as violent. The younger brother was much more docile, had no criminal history, um, and uh, he wanted to, to say uh, to the jury, uh, you know, he was kind of led astray, uh, and this evidence would have been part of making that, uh, establishing that uh, for the jury, but it was not allowed. And so the First Circuit said, for these two reasons, we are setting aside the death penalty, uh, the sentence. They didn't vacate the convictions um, as such. They, they touched on a couple, but, I mean, the, the basis of of the of the uh, the case, the convictions are still there. The question is whether or not there needs to be another sentencing hearing. Um, there are a number, not as many as the Jackson case, but there are a number of friend of the court briefs. Um, almost, uh, there were only two that I found that were in in favor of the government. The rest were in favor of of uh, Mr. Sarnef. There were a couple of. Uh, what I would consider to be quite interesting briefs. Uh, one was by, uh, was for uh, th two PhDs and an MD, and it was filed by a lawyer from Quebec. It's only eight pages. It makes reference to some other things that are contained in the appendix of the record, so I guess, you know, that's why one of the reasons it was so short. But the defendant in this case confessed twice. First, when he was there in the boat hiding um, right before he, for a period of hours before he was uh, taken into custody, he wrote on some wood uh, some sort of confession. Kind of so, like a manifesto. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, he was proud of it. Secondly, after he was taken into custody and while in the hospital, he was questioned without being Mirandized in order to assist the FBI uh, with determining whether or not there were other co-conspirators or other members of a cell or, or if, if there was any ongoing threat to the public. Some of that was reported and was the basis uh, for some of the pretrial publicity concerns that we've just talked about. But the trial counsel or the defense counsel in the trial, in his opening statement, admitted on behalf of his client that he was guilty of the crime. 
And he went so far as to say, you know, we're not going to tell you that this is not him in the pictures. We're not going to tell you that he didn't do it. And sort of we're going to talk about, you know, maybe why he did it, getting back to the, the mitigation and the coercion by his brother. But there's this friend of the court brief, and it is – there's not a lot – of precedent referred to there's a little bit but it basically talks about how there is direct evidence of this defendant's innocence uh, and that it was known to the lawyers on both sides and it was either before the court properly or it was things that the court could take judicial notice about uh, it was not pointed out to the court by either side uh, in the course of the trial. These guys filed a, a, a brief, a friend of the court brief in the First Circuit and made these same arguments. And uh, they were, uh, and I'll read this to you. We, we were therefore surprised when on July 31st, 2020, the First Circuit handed down its opinion and judgment but did not mention or discuss said exculpatory evidence. Um, <laughs> uh, so I, I thought that was priceless. I, you know, um, I would like to think that there's some basis in fact for this, but I, I'm not sure these guys don't have some Rule 11 issues for filing a, yeah. a baseless motion, um, especially when they're going to accuse lawyers on both sides of covering up um, uh, facts and evidence. Um, the other one that I that I uh, thought was most interesting, and, and and frankly, I thoroughly enjoyed reading it, um, is a, a a friend of the court brief by a guy named Michael J Z. He has four names, last name Manheimer, M A N N H E I M E R, who's a professor at the Salmon P Chase College of Law at Northern Kentucky University. And Mr. Mannheimer is a has a scholarly interest in the Eighth Amendment and more particularly the Cruel and Unusual Punishments Clause. And he also has a scholarly interest in the related area uh, with regard to the imposition of the federal death penalty in non-death penalty states. And his argument is that the Anti-Federalists wanted the Eighth Amendment and specifically the Cruel and Unusual Punishments Clause to prohibit the federal government from usurping the common law of each state with regard to, among other things, punishment in this case, and that they knew and understood that the the uh, cruel and unusual punishments clause thus required a state specific analysis and that it is violative of that clause for an individual to be given the death penalty in a federal case when his crime was committed solely within the territorial boundaries of a state that has either abolished or never had the death penalty itself. That is interesting. It is fascinating. And, and then he goes on to say that he has 
done a great deal of research and has found that in the, I want to read it to you correctly. And while you're looking for that, let me just say, we normally think about dual sovereigns so that states are sovereign, um, separate from the federal government. A person can actually be tried criminally for the similar offense in both federal court and state court. That's right. He, he says that he has been researching the subject since 2005, and he has identified only a single instance in the 213-year-long period from 1789 when the Constitution uh, with the uh, Bill of Rights, um, which is the first 10 minutes, amendments to the Constitution, was passed to 2002, in which the federal government imposed a death sentence for an offense committed within, this, within a state that did not author, also authorize capital punishment for the same offense. And and then he, he apparently has written either a book or a law review article about this case. The outlier was Anthony... Chebatoris, C-H-E-B-A-T-O-R-I-S, who was sentenced to death in 1937 and executed the following year for a botched robbery in Michigan in which a bystander was killed. Okay, which shocked me that Michigan in 1937 wouldn't have had the death penalty, but nevertheless. He says that this occurred at the height of nationalistic fervor over the New Deal when principles of federalism were overwhelmed by the rising tide of federal power amidst the nation's desperate attempt to claw its way out of the Great Depression. But then the most interesting part about that story. It gets better. Oh, yeah. Remarkably, Chebatoris never appealed his conviction or his sentence. Wonder how long he lived how, before how they that, carried it out. Yeah. I mean, it, did they take him out right then and shoot him? I mean, yeah. It's entirely possible in 1937. <laughs> I don't know. But, you know, what's uh, what's interesting about that is, first of all, I'm not, it sounds like Professor Meinheimer has done a great deal of research, but yeah. I never find it very convincing to say, well, it hadn't been done before. We, It's that's just right. that's the corollary of, well, we've always done it that way. Exactly. That make it right. Yeah. Uh, but the other thing is, you know, the judges, the lawyers, even the jurors in federal court, while it's a separate sovereign, they're drawn from the same community as those that make up state court. Um, so it's it's might be consistent that federal sentencing and convictions are more analogous to state in in many respects. But if if this were to if his if his theory were to hold sway, then every state or every federal district court would have to figure out what the state rules are and apply those differently from the next state over. Right. Which he says is entirely the point and, and and what's required because the concern at the time of the adoption of the Eighth Amendment was that the federal government was going to act directly upon the people and thus destroy, if not uh, you know, severely hamstring, the states and infringe upon the states' uh, ability to do some things and also infringe upon the rights and the liberties of the people. But but the most interesting argument, it seems to me, uh, that he makes, he kind of flips the uh, original intent argument on uh, what are traditionally the conservative proponents of that argument by saying that the original intent and original meaning of the Eighth Amendment Cruel and Unusual Punishments Clause at the time it was adopted, was that each state's standards would limit 
the, the range of punishments that the federal government could impose on a citizen in a particular state for violation of a federal crime. Now, here's the flip side of that, the flip side of the flip side. What does the supremacy clause do to that argument? I think it's a novel concept. I think he's a very smart man. I don't think he's right, though. Yeah, I don't think so either. It's going to be interesting to see what the Supreme Court does with that, though. Yeah, and, and, and you know, the, the, the thing that I think I would say to Professor Mannheimer is I don't think there were many people at all, even in the Commonwealth of Massachusetts, which was often referred to during the Reagan years as the People's Republic of Massachusetts, who were not in favor of Mr. Sarneff receiving the death penalty. And the only reason he couldn't in Massachusetts State Court was it hadn't been enacted, but I think if necessary, they would have even enacted it, given it to him, and then repealed it. I mean, those folks were upset. If, if that were constitutional, and we're not uh, suggesting that it is. We're not suggesting that it is, but, uh, um, you know, the public opinion was in fa- is in favor of the death penalty for, for, for him. Uh, that was that was a case that went on for days too. If, if any of our listeners remember, I mean, you had the the bombing at the marathon, and you saw the tragic results there. But then the manhunt for days afterwards was on the news constantly. And for any who've seen the movie, it's outstanding. It is good. Uh, you know, one other thing I found interesting about this case is that uh, the the circuit court struck the death penalty. I guess in the summer of twenty twenty. And um, so the petition for cert was actually filed in October of 2020 by the Trump administration. Uh, Cert wasn't granted at that point because, of course, it just takes some period of time before they they do that. Um, So after cert was granted, the Biden administration had come into office and they're still pushing the same position. They're still advocating that the death penalty should be reinstated in this case. That is interesting. Um, and, and, you know, the, the bad thing, it seems to me, Ed, is we're surprised that they would do that. We're surprised that there would be any consistency because they've yeah. made every effort to overturn everything else for the Trump administration. Right. And, and, and even to the extent they choose not to follow the law, uh, for instance, the announcement today that mere presence illegally in this country is not to be considered sufficient grounds to deport when it's contrary to the law. So uh, I'm glad they did it in this instance or are doing it in this instance with regard to this appeal, but it, it's sad that, it's, that, that we're surprised. So I'll do cleanup here uh, with a fourth case. My other one was United States versus Zubata. And I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. But uh, it goes back actually after 9-11. The U.S. picked up this guy. His name is Zain Husavid, also known as Abu Zabada. He was detained on the battlefield in Pakistan and sent to Gitmo. Now, he alleges that before he actually got to Gitmo, he was sent to a black site run by the CIA in Poland. and. So later on, he goes to Gitmo, he gets an attorney, fast forward a number of years. He and his lawyer have um, brought a criminal case in Poland against the Polish officials who were involved with this black site 
alleging his unlawful detention and torture there. So he files that case in 2010. It's been pending for a long time. During this time, he's gone to the EU, uh, various human rights committees. He's appealed to the U.S. Senate for help. So he's moved this thing through trying to get a criminal conviction in Poland. Um, Poland actually sent a request to the United States for information. U.S. said, you know, we're not going to provide you any information. So the Polish prosecutor tells Abu Zubaydah and his attorney that they can submit information which would aid in this investigation. So what do they do? Well, his attorney comes to the United States, goes to federal district court, and he uses a process that's under federal law to uh, get discovery. And so he asked to subpoena two named individuals. I, I won't name them here, but they were alleged to be former CIA contractors who were administering enhanced interrogation techniques in Poland at this black site uh, following 9-11. So the district court said, OK, you can uh, you can depose them. So he'd have his discovery information he could take back to Poland. Only at that point did the federal government move to intervene based on the state secret privilege. Uh, there's an affidavit in here from Mike Pompeo when he was the director of central intelligence before he had become secretary of state. Uh, and there's a lot, a lot of citation of that affidavit. But Pompeo basically said that this uh, testimony is critical to national security and that they were invoking the state secrets privilege so that he couldn't depose these guys. Uh, the district court grants the motion to quash. So, so at that point, no depositions. Abu and his attorney, they appeal it to the Ninth Circuit, which is a pretty liberal circuit in the West Coast. That panel rules two to one to reverse and remand. Uh, and the majority talks a lot. The majority on the panel talks a lot about what he wants and says that these facts would not cause grave damage to national security. Uh, the, the dissenter actually wrote, quote, the majority jeopardizes critical national security concerns, end quote. It then goes to a rehearing in Bonk. That's denied. So now the federal government has appealed to the U.S. Supreme Court trying to prevent these depositions. And the, the government's position is that basically there should be deference given to the CIA director on national security matters and that the courts here have erred by substituting their own judgment for that of true national security officials. Uh, and this is another one in which there's some carryover because the current CIA director, William Burns, has also taken the view that none of this information should be released. So they're being consistent with the, the last administration on that one also. And that there are numerous uh, friend of the court briefs, almost all of which are in support of Zubata. Uh, so I found it interesting that it's from a national security standpoint and it really puts the question, the issue to what district courts and even circuit courts can do to exercise discretion in determining what is a national security secret. Fascinating. Now, let me ask you, is there a criminal case in Poland or is it an investigation to determine whether there will be a criminal case? Yeah, that's an interesting question, and I'm not familiar with Polish law. However, not, the— uh, You haven't been admitted in Poland? <laughs> I'm working on that. The 
However, the petition for rid of certiorari and the briefs that they refer to it as initiating a criminal process. I don't know if that involves an investigation first, as we would typically think of it in the U.S., or exactly the scope of it. Because you wonder, I would assume these two individuals would be potential defendants there, uh, along with a number of, of others, including probably Polish nationals, uh, because I think what you're talking about is a, is a rendition where uh, this guy was taken to a place where he could be treated um, a little differently than he could be treated uh, in the United States uh, uh, territory. Um, and I would assume that the Polish government uh, had some role uh, either in facilitating that or handling it or leasing space or something. But again, I'm, I'm, I'm shocked, but I'm glad that the uh, Biden administration is being consistent and Mr. Burns is, is being consistent as well. I think courts have probably traditionally given wide deference or great deference to executive branch officials with regard to what is and is not uh, a danger or a threat to national security since the beginning of the Republic, even. I'm just trying to think about, I'm sure there have probably been some exceptions. I don't know that I could come up with any off the top of my head. No, I can't either. And I mean, what's different about this is that it involves these black sites and, and Guantanamo Bay and rendition of individuals, which I don't think people could, you know, people can now say that they were very pure and that they were opposed to it from the beginning. But I think after 9-11, when there was smoke coming from the ground in New York, there were there was a bountiful sentiment in, Amer- sentiment in America that we're going to do whatever we can to bring people to justice. That's right. And I don't think too many people had a lot of heartache over Formalities that. and niceties be damned. Exactly. Uh, just like the folks in, in, in the Commonwealth of Massachusetts post-Boston uh, Marathon bombing, uh, they weren't too concerned about, uh, as I said, niceties and formalities. The last point about this is that it really goes to the independence of the judiciary as a separate branch of government and how far they can go to override the decision made of the executive branch in this field. I guess the next step in those sort of questions always is the ends uh, at the quote that uh, Andrew Jackson had with regard to then Chief Justice John Marshall, where he said, you know, Mr. Mr. Marshall has made his law. Now let him enforce it. And, you know, at some point you wonder if some some president and or his administration or folks in his administration are going to tell the Supreme Court. We don't care what you do. We're not going to do anything about it. And good luck. And then, of course, you've got a constitutional crisis, potentially. You do. Um, we've avoided those for the most part. Uh, I like to think we could continue to avoid those, but who knows? Uh, if you feel strongly enough about some of these national security issues and you're president, you, you might force the issue. That's right. And we or would have to do a, a special podcast, Ed. And we are ready to do that on a moment's notice. Uh, absolutely, we are. Well, so those are four cases that we're highlighting, but there, there are going to be you know a few dozen more. And there could be more cases that the court grants cert to as, as the term goes along. So we'll be following it. We'll talk about it every week, I imagine. I hope so. We'll have uh, extras, as it were, as necessary. Special episodes. Stay tuned. Yes. All right. Well, thanks for tuning in for another episode of the Let's Think About That podcast. You can contact us at comments at letsthinkpodcast.com. 
If you've enjoyed this episode, please click subscribe on your podcast provider and leave us a review. We, the people. Oh, yay, oh, yay, oh, yay. All persons having business before the Honorable, the Supreme Court of the United States, are admonished to draw near and give their attention, for the court is now sitting. God save the United States and this Honorable Court.